HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, people. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for being here this evening. This is really exciting. Um, This is Welcome to Eating Matters. Um, We are a podcast broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network uh, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. And I just want to give a shout out. This is a live recording from Industry City, and we are so pumped to be here. This is actually my first live podcast situation. So um, thank you. Okay, so over the past year, I have uh, been talking a lot about meat, both real animal meat and lab-grown and meat alternatives. I've had the pleasure of interviewing a farmer, an animal welfare activist, authors, journalists, scientists, academics, and now I can add to my list a butcher. Um, And pretty much everyone, except for Paul Willis, who is said farmer I interviewed a few weeks ago, has said that we as a society need to, well, not eat red meat or at least reduce our consumption to once per week in order to meet certain sustainability goals, like the ability to produce enough food for the expected 10 million people we will have on this planet by 2050. So it may sound weird that right now I find myself in an actual butcher shop, but I'm here because I think that it is important to get all perspectives of an issue, and who better to talk about issues um, of eating meat, issues like sustainability, taste preferences, ethics, culture affordability, all of that that arise when deciding whether or not you should eat meat, who better to talk to than a butcher? So with further ado, without further ado, without, with further ado, I should keep talking, (laughs) with further, without further ado, um, I want to welcome John Ratliff to the show, head honcho of Ends Meat, a whole animal salumeria butcher shop and chef's table. Welcome, John. (laughs) That's right off your website. Is it really? Wow. I'm going to have to pay whoever did that double, for sure. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Salumaria, did I say that correctly? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so, okay. So, by the way, also I said you're the head honcho. That is officially, that's what's on your website. I've never interviewed a head honcho before. I the hell I wrote head honcho on the <laughs> website. I don't know. What, what does that mean? Uh, I don't know. It means I couldn't figure out a name for myself <laughs> or a title. I don't know what I am. I like... It happens all the time where it's like, am I a president? Am I an owner? Am I the head butcher? Am I the head chef? Uh, am I the, a salumiere or a charcutier? I have no idea. I'm just running a small business. Charcuterie? Charcuterie? Uh. Oui, oui. <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, I, I think I was kind of making light of the fact that um, in order to do this whole animal thing, Um, successfully, you have to wear a lot of hats. And I have no idea what the name of that hat is. It's the head honcho. There you go. It's like a big one. It's like a big sombrero, but with feathers. I didn't see the feathers coming from the chicken. (laughs) 
there's feathers in there for okay. sure. All right, cool. Well, now that I got the, I, I got it down. I got it down. All right, so this is not your normal shop, I would say. Um, you've got a lot going on here. Like you. What do you mean normal? What is? I mean, you guys are very. Um, um, what is the what is the word I'm looking for? Um, you got a lot. It's um, I forget the word. It starts with a C. Yeah, sure. Multifaceted. I was going to say there, you know, there are a lot of different facets to your business. Um, it's not just a butcher shop. It's a chef's table. Also, apparently that you felt like that was news to you. (laughs) I don't know. I just never heard it called a chef's table before. That's like, so like Michelin star terminology. I think it seems accurate. I think people sit down at our butcher block and eat eight courses. Yeah. I don't know what you call that. Is that a chef's table? Yeah. Can we call it a butcher's table? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Butcher's table. That's so much better. All right. So, um, so yeah, I would say, can you um, just kind of give us uh, the oh the spiel behind um, like an overview of all of the different service that you have? Like you have a meat kind of share too, right? That I don't think I mentioned. Yeah, we we do. Let me see. Uh, there is what. What don't we do? That might be easier to... We just built a bakery in the basement. You did not. I swear. Really? It's right below you. I don't have any treats from the bakery in front of me, so I... Oh, for the bread, the bread. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> You're getting me a piece of bread. This is this is amazing. Oh, I'm... Okay, I'm going to give you the mic, and I'm going to eat that. Okay, I'll take the mic. You can tell us more about... This is where I get a I get a takeover now. Yeah. All right, let me get, let me lean back here. This is going to take a while. Um, so, in in like the overall aspect of whole animal, um, and in relation to the business and its location, uh, the demographic that we see out here, we've kind of transferred and transitioned and moved into and moved away from and grown out of necessity and pulled back from out of necessity uh, into this thing that we get a response out of. So we are, first and foremost, we are a butcher shop, Salumeria. Butcher shop, you know, we bring in whole animals, we cut them down. We serve fresh cuts, uh, and we make, you know, oh, like a hundred different types of protein products, right? Uh, Salumeria, that is the focus on salted cured meats that, uh, they're one of the big reasons why I got into it. Um, they have a, the main focus on that is fermentation, and I totally geek out on that. Yeah, we're going to talk about that later. But, so we do... Uh, I like to call them uh, fermented, like cured fermented dried meats. Um, and then, what else do we do? We, we, we're a sandwich shop, but we're a little more than a sandwich shop. We kind of do this thing where you, like we have sandwiches and then we change our menu every day. We only bring in so much, so when you bring in a whole pig, you only get four pork shanks. That's like eight orders of one thing. So that means one day you can order, you can run eight orders of pork shanks. So we constantly change specials to help utilize cuts that aren't moving in a cured fermented fashion or raw through the case. Um, and so that's the kind of like prepared food sandwich deli part. And then we um, we do a lot of podcasts. This will be the fifth one we've done this week. We just, we got one right after you. (laughs) Um, We, 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 we do, we do, uh, you know, we work with some restaurants. We work with, um, I've, I've had some very longstanding relationships that uh, we, we still rely on as a big part of our business. So Um, so does that, does that mean you are like the, wholesaler kind of for the for the restaurants like they source their meat through you and you source it directly from the farm well i mean obviously we're going directly to the farm um but a lot of it is more specialized products um very very like 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not we're not sending over like a bunch of mass quantities of meats. It's our it's the, the products we specialize in that they can't find other places. Um, what else do we do? We do our CSA, which is uh, meat share. Um, people commit to a season, a 12-week cycle, um, pay in advance, and either every week or every other week, we supply them with uh, what should be their either weekly consumption or, or, or two-weekly consumption, bi-weekly consumption. Sometimes I wonder if bi-weekly means twice a week or once every two weeks. I think I think it can mean both. I think semi is semi is like semi weekly is all right, whatever. So yeah. Do weekly? I think so. Yeah. Can I say bi weekly? Yeah, bi weekly is yes. Twice a month. Yes, that's correct. Except for those fifty two weeks in the year, I don't know what I'm, I'm really bad at math. It's okay. You're doing great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we have our CSA. We uh, do a lot of catering. Um, we do off-site events. A lot of those fo kind of focus on whole animal roasts. So we'll do a lot of weddings, um, roast whole pigs, feed a lot of people. You know, I wear overalls. It's kind of fun. Um, do, you, do you wear the hat? I have to wear a smaller version of it. At that point in time, it's more like a fedora. It's like it's it's shrunken down. Um, yeah, so we do catering, um, and then uh, what, what, we have the bakery downstairs. That's a new thing, baking all our bread in house. Uh, partnered with a lady who has a company called Bread and Roses, and um, just needed a place to get her company started. So we set up a bakery in the basement. She's been producing beautiful bread for us. Uh, we're using it at our two locations. Um, we just opened our second location in the Lower East Side. Yeah. Um, yeah. Con congratulations um, on that. That's super, super exciting. I think you should come closer. Come closer. Come. Carefully. There you go. It's a little too close. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. It's great. It's great. It's <laughs> okay, so I want to talk about your second location. You just put a lot out there. You're clearly a very, very busy man. Um, first, uh, I want to hear from you why you decided to open a butcher. Did you start with the actual... It seems like you probably started with the actual butcher shop, right? And then built from there. So how did you kind of get your start in this uh, industry? And Why? Wait, I don't think we got through all the aspects of my hat yet. We didn't get to the feather part. We'll come back to it. We'll come back. We'll loop it around. All right. What was the question again? How did I get my start? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. This is going to be a three-hour podcast. <laughs> right. I didn't know if I could say that. Can you throw shout-outs? I have the most, I have as many followers as he does. No way. Wow, this is a big deal. I'm about to get really nervous. Mm -hmm. Am I blushing yet? No. Okay, good. A little bit. Started cooking young, culinary background, moved around the country. Did you go to culinary school? Did you go to culinary school? I did. Um, I grew up in New Mexico and then went to culinary school in Portland, Oregon. It was kind of like one of those quick shots out of high school. Hit the road real quick, and um, Portland, Oregon for a little while. Mainly that was so I could smoke weed and snowboard. Yeah. Um, but kind of really got into some good restaurants and started cooking aggressively and kind of stopped snowboarding and stopped smoking weed and just started, just started cooking. Um, and that I got really serious about it. I moved to Chicago. Uh, I got... I hired at a restaurant called Moto. This was in like 2006. And uh, worked there for a little over a year. And then spent some time trailing at a restaurant called Alinea. Trailed there for a long time. And worked at a couple other really good, they're all like Michelin-starred restaurants. A place called North Pond, a place called Boca. Alinea seems far afield of what you what you do now. What kind of stuff did you learn there that you apply to your work here every day? I don't know. How to keep my apron clean? How to sweep a floor? <laughs> Good. Okay. 
No, I don't know. I just like, like so when I was working at Moto, I would work. Um, you know, I'd have like one day off, and I would spend that one day at Alenia. Slacker. <laughs> Slacker. One day. Exactly. <laughs> Dude, when you're 21, if you can't work seven days a week, you know, come on. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm making a bit terrible joke. Nobody should work seven days a week. It's fucking maniacal. Um, but no, I, I, what I do now is a very far cry from what I was doing them then. And um, the reason why it's such a far cry is because I didn't really... It took me a little bit to realize what it was and I wasn't that wasn't who I was it wasn't what I cared about it was like the science was there the technique the concept was amazing but nothing was about sourcing nothing was about a bigger picture um uh and don't get me wrong there's like there's tons of restaurants sourcing amazingly um I just wanted to be a little a little closer to it um and then I moved to New York um, and I was, uh, uh, there was a, a, a restaurant called the Voce that, um, gave me a job when I first moved here. Um, and that was, uh, like at the end of 2008, early 2009. Was that in, um, on the circle? No, it was their first location in, on 26 in Madison. And I got hired there right when Andrew Carmelini left and Missy Robbins took over the kitchen. And I swear she just hired me because she had just moved from Chicago also. And she's like, Chicago guys. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I got somebody on my team. Um, and I, I worked there for a little bit. I was her sous chef for a little over a year. Um, almost said shoe chef. I was better than a shoe chef. Yeah. I was way better than a shoe chef. Um, and kind of... Uh, couple of things happened. I was working, you know, long weeks, and I was, it was, you know, 2010 and not really making a, making much money, wasn't really doing, doing much for me outside of work, and just kind of made a decision. I was just like, look, if I'm going to work this hard, I'd, I'd like it to be for myself. And uh, at the same time, I, had, I just had this, like, strong interest in learning how to make salami. I just worked in a handful of restaurants very seriously, and nobody was, like, everybody's buying it. Nobody's making it. Nobody has an in-house salami program. Now, now tons of places do, but at that point in time, there were very few places, and... I just was so enthralled by this thing that I was like, what is fermented meat? Like, that sounds like like we're going to kill people. Yeah. And so, so let's do it. Yeah. Like, so, let's, so, 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 so why not buy five fridges and line the wall of your apartment in Bushwick and start? Is that what, is that what you did? Is that how this started? Well, it started with one fridge. It didn't like, like, I wasn't just like, all right, line up the fridges. We're going in. It was, it was, it was a, it was a slow progress, Pro- progression, progressiveness, yeah. biweekly progressiveness. Bi-weekly, so bi-weekly. Bi-weekly. Um, yeah, I, what I was doing was, uh, I was my, my, the chef de cuisine there, Hillary Sterling, who's amazing. She has a restaurant called Vicks. Um, which is phenomenal if you shouldn't go. Or if you shouldn't go, then please go. Uh, if you should go, then double go. Um, and and she, she had spent some time in another restaurant making salami. She uh, showed me a couple of batches of salami, and I was just, like, absolutely enthralled. And so I'd work my, like, whatever, 14, 16-hour shift, and then I would make salami in the basement. And I actually didn't tell the tell Missy Robbins this until a couple of years ago, because there was like no way she was going to be okay with me making salami in her basement. When I was, didn't want to break that news. Like, a couple of years. Why don't you open 
and Lilia up yeah. and get a lot of praise for that. Then we'll come back to this conversation. No, I definitely waited till the James Beard Award. Where I was like, yeah, dude, you're too far past to even worry about that shit. Um, and yeah, so I would make salami in the basement and I'd put it in my backpack and I'd ride my bike home and let it ferment and then put it in a fridge and let it age for four months and really, really cross my fingers and hope it turned out. Uh, nine times out of ten, it did not. Uh, but the one time it did was amazing. And I took it to every single bar I went to and gave it out to all my friends. And lo and behold, some chefs wanted to start buying it from me, uh, which you can't talk about at all. That's not even, like, not even a thing. A thing. Yeah. So, so, so you... Started, you made it in a basement and then you took it home in your backpack to put it in a fridge. And then a few months later, you were like, Let's see if this works out. And mostly it didn't, but sometimes you didn't, it did. And then you're like, Who wants to buy this? <laughs> Not came, as much, I wasn't like, I wasn't as much trolling for people. <laughs> it was like, I'd show up to a bar with a salami in my pocket and a knife and be like, Hey, bud, happy to see you. <laughs> It was a little more curated than that, all right? I have, I have some tact. Like, I don't know. No, it was... It was um, no, it, it took a long time for, for me to pull down anything um, that I felt somewhat decent about that I would share with the world. A lot of things went out in trash bags, unfortunately. But what I was able to start doing is figuring out what, uh, what it was to properly pH meat um, and and then what temperatures, humidities, um, molds, and, well, not molds, but uh, bacteria that um, I wanted to work with to make something that was unique and worked in the environment that I had, um, which was a one-bedroom apartment in Bushwick, which they don't make a lot of those bacterias, yeah. you know? They're not, like, targeting those. They're like, all right, this one's... <laughs> This one's for a USDA facility. This one's for a one-bedroom apartment, um, which is so important, the type of bacteria that goes into uh, an inoculated uh, salumi. They're, I mean, they're all inoculated to a certain degree, but there is um, uh, the ability to utilize more natural um, inoculant, which is like taking it from an older batch. Um, I was not confident enough in those days to do that, nor am I now. That's a tricky game. But, okay, back on track. Fermenting, curing meats in my apartment. Started with one fridge, two fridge, three fridge, blah, 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 blah. Sounds like a child's home. One, two, two fridge, two, three, four fridge. Um, and then after about a year of doing that, I decided it was time to either do it or don't do it. Um, I had left Avoce at that time. I was uh, kind of helping a restaurant start up in Greenpoint called Callier. And uh, working in the basement there, the owners, there was a couple of owners, one of them old in building, and the other one, um, who is a good friend of mine, owns a bunch of other places. Um, they were like, you know what, bring whole animals in here. Like, we, we are okay with it. Um, and... That lasted for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And then one day they're just like, you got to get out of here. This can't work. And there just happened to be a pig on the table that day. Uh, so I got lucky enough to uh, know a guy that had a loft space down the street. And um, he was just using it for, like, he was the guy who built out the restaurant. So he'd go around to auctions and pull a bunch of equipment and cool old knickknacks and then store them in a loft and then build out a restaurant. And he let me rent that space from him. So it was a 1,400 square foot space on the third floor of a building that absolutely 100% is not kosher for food production. Um, and... Not, not literally kosher, but... In any, like, in any form of the word... Okay, so it sounds like a long, a long journey, and now you're at this beautiful space 
in Industry City. How long, how many years did it take for me to get to your apartment to this incredible location that you are at now? I thought you said you had three hours on this podcast, dude. I'm leaning into this. Okay, so I did that. Here's, here, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I did that for a little bit. The best part about that was since it wasn't for food production, I had to hide the fact that I turned a loft space into a butcher shop. And I rented the front side of it out to a guy who upholstered couches. And the butcher shop was behind it. And I did that for four years. And I only... In Greenpoint? Where was this? 67 West Street. No. Yes. Okay. Okay. That's like me when people are like, "Oh yeah, I'm from uh, I'm from Kansas." I'm like, "Where in Kansas?" I don't <laughs> do know, you know anything. Do you know my friend, do you know my friend Ryan? Uh, <laughs> um. Anyway, so so you were, like a, you were like a front. I was a total front, yeah. and I was just working. Like I had a legit LLC. I started Ensmead LLC in 2010, and I was making legal transactions. However, not like legally producing. Yeah. But uh, after four years, um, I had a little bit of a financial track record. And um, that's when I came out here. And uh, is, my, is my math correct? I came out here in 2015. Mm-hmm. 2015? I think I signed the lease in 2014. I don't know. These leases take so long. Um, and, yeah, so the, the beginning of it over there was working with farms, right? So the farms I work with now, I, I started the business working with. Okay. And, I, and I, want, I want to talk about some of those farms. So you say on the website, well, and just I want to kind of say, like, congratulations on making it here. It's been, like, sounds like a total journey to, to make it to Industry City. So, and um, it's worth it, I would say. I'm going to speak for you and say totally worth it. Um, (laughs) worth it anyway. All right. So you on the website say big part of your value proposition is that you have, you work with responsibly raised animals. So I would like to know a little bit more about what responsibly raised means to you and what factors you take in consideration when deciding to work with a farm. Um, yeah. When deciding to work with a farmer, particular farmer. Can you do me a favor? Depends on what the favor is. Will you describe what value proposition means to you? <laughs> what differentiates you from other butchers and what makes you like, what is it that you're giving to the customer that's like totally unique and differentiates you from other competitors? Cool, because I was about to give you a totally different description. <laughs> uh, um. The term responsibly raised, no no official definition, right? So in terms of like legally, federal level, so what, what, is, what does that mean? It can be totally whatever you want it to be. Well, what does organic mean? There is an official standard de- definition of that that's like pretty very specific and long and some would say needs to be updated, but like... Um, yeah, there is, I mean, these are like sustainably raised, environmentally responsible. These are marketing terms and a lot of people use them for, wait, why are you holding the microphone? I am the one doing the interview here. (laughs) I'm keeping the mic raised. It's my microphone. So I think that these, you know, these are, these are terms that a lot of brands and companies, they're very popular right now. A lot of, there's a lot of greenwashing that goes on, right? And so you can say like, we're a butcher shop and we only work with responsibly raised, you know, we only responsibly source our animals, whatever. But that doesn't, what does that mean, right? It can be defined in a lot of different ways. Um, so one thing you'll notice on all of our walls we have a ton of marketing language all over. The That's place. not true. Just we just beat it into people's head. Um, no, I mean, at the end of the day, for me, um, something that's more important than a lot of the marketing language and uh, terminology is the reality that we support farms directly and we support farms that I think I personally agree with their practices and their methods and I personally agree with who they are as people and I built a business around supporting them 
So what are some of those practices? By the way, I know you have, is Cascoon one of your farmers? And they are, I have to say, that they're the only place I get my chicken from, actually. So I hit your website and saw that. And as a consumer who knows a little bit more in this space, I was like, amazing. <laughs> they know what they're doing. But for other people who may not be as familiar with your suppliers or, you know, with your shop in general, can you just kind of break down a little bit what, like, you say that you feel good about their practices? So maybe an example of how they treat whatever animal they raise, like a cat or your beef farmer, let's say. The, the beef farmer is kind of, he's pretty special, I think. Um, I mean, outside of the fact that he's a fifth generation beef farm on 400 acres, um, like a little close to Vermont outside of Troy, um, they're like, they, they used to do dairy. It used to be a dairy farm and they couldn't make it as a dairy farm. Um, and they transitioned into beef. But, I mean... When? I'm just curious. When? Because dairy farmers have been in a, a bad way recently, the past few years specifically. No, like 15 years ago. Um, but I think everything up... Not everything up there is in a bad way. It's just like to to sustain that much acreage and to sustain not being able to feed grain and... and uh, increase your animal's weight faster. Um, you really have to maintain your land. You really have to work hard at it. And they're like, like driving school buses and delivering mail for USPS so that they can pay their rent or so they can pay their taxes so they can pay for their farm. And to me, that's, um, that's sad. Like 400 acres, beautiful, pristine pasture land. Um, you know, um, I think a, a really important uh, uh, term or phrase that um, doesn't get utilized often enough in describing sustainable agriculture uh, is regenerative agriculture. And utilizing your soil as as the true quality standpoint of how your farm's doing and rotating and treating your animals in a way that benefits your land and being good enough to make sure that benefits the animals in the same way. That's a lot of work. Do you visit the farms before you agree to work with a particular supplier, like personally? I've only worked with like three suppliers since I've started this business. So yes. So that's yes. Frequently, which was another one of my questions. Yeah. It seems like you have a limited number of suppliers. So I'm curious about, um, why you made that decision. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm in it to support these farms. Um, if they have the capacity to raise more animals, then my goal is to have the capacity to purchase those animals from them. If I go elsewhere or um, purchase animal, you know, if I purchase animals anywhere else, then I am not uh, supporting the farm to my fullest, and that's that's what it is for me. About the relationship. Yeah, it's about really supporting a farm. Um. Okay. Wow. Very very cool. It's funny because I think that it seems. Like when farmers agree to, you can't actually walk away from the, from the interview because then I have to. Okay, I'll keep talking. Um, it seems like that's really important. You know, I think that there are for a farmer to have a, a trust in a supplier or in like a like a vendor, right, a retailer. I think that that trust is um, hard to forge too. So it seems like you did it. Congratulations. <laughs> So when I was working in Greenpoint, um, the, whole, the whole point of doing Greenpoint was so that I could sustainably grow to uh, this point, to opening my own brick and mortar. And they knew that goal, and they were on board for that goal. Um, when I first opened here, I didn't, 
have I don't have any investors or any partners. Um, this is all on loans, and um, I was able to work with farms in the regard that they loaned me the animals until I could pay them back. Wow, that's a lot of trust that they are putting in you. It's amazing. Yeah, it's beyond amazing. I mean, they, they are true business partners and ends meet. I think um, at that point in time, we are probably 90% fermented cured product, which can have an average turnaround time of four months, four to six months. Um, that's a lot of cash sitting around in a room drying out. And I wasn't able to really produce a product for four months. So what they did was they didn't send me an invoice for six months. I was getting beef every week, pigs every week, and um, I was able to pay them back without interest over the next year, spread out. So a little, a pretty like aggressive farm bankish loan. <laughs> And they don't, farmers don't usually have a whole lot of money to loan out themselves. <laughs> but they do have these assets that uh, if I wasn't buying them, they weren't going to be, they weren't going anywhere anyway. Um, and let's be honest, like a farm to turn around an animal, um, that's going to take two and a half years. Yeah. Like in the grass-fed world, when they're getting these animals close to 30 months, and unfortunately, some of them go over 30 months, which is something else we can talk about at another time, which, is, which sucks. But uh, it's great for the meat. It's bad for the, for, the, for the spine. We'll talk about that. Um, okay, so we, I want to take a really quick uh, break and want to give a big thanks to our sponsors here at Industry City and just let everybody know that Industry City is New York's hub for the innovation economy, a diverse mix of over 500 business called Industry City Home, collaborating across the 16-building campus, merging today's creative sectors like tech, content creation, and design with craft-making and traditional manufacturing and butchering. The Industry City food scene is a rich yet approachable international experience for every palate. With five acres of outdoor space, more than five, 50 experiential food vendors and retailers, plus unrivaled tenant amenities, Industry City is a bustling hub where 8,000 people come to work daily and thousands stop by for a visit. Wow, 8,000 people. Well done, Industry City. That's impressive. And it's just the coolest space uh, in Brooklyn. So, okay, um... I feel like I have 10,000 more questions for you. Um, you know what I kind of want to do? I just want to ask you some personal questions first because we haven't quite <laughs> personally yet. Um, and then I want to come back and talk about what whole animal butchering means to you. I want to talk a little about pricing issues. And I want to talk to you. Um, there's probably like one other question that I have in there. But um, we'll find it. Um, uh, all right. Here's the thing that I really want to know. 100% grass-fed or grass-fed green-finished? You know what I really like is... Uh, this question? Grain-fed, grass-finished. <laughs> I find that hilarious. <laughs> like, I think that's like a CAFO, but okay. Absolutely. <laughs> like, a, you know, like, a, like a fancy CAFO. <laughs> oh, people... So like I don't know. Anyways, there, there we go. Uh, what did... What did uh, what do we, what do we, so you, are you, are you, are you asking or are you questioning? Cause I feel like you're questioning. hundred percent grass fed. Never, never fed grain. You don't like it. <laughs> I'm a grass grain. I like a grain finished piece of steak. Is that terrible? I don't actually feel bad about it. I don't feel bad about it. Don't make me feel bad about it. No, I don't feel bad about it. Um, what is your favorite? What? Like 99% of people eat fully grain-fed beef. At least the beef you're eating and liking eats a little grass. 
they eat all grass and just a little bit of grain at the end. And I know the farmer, not personally, but I know where it comes from. Okay. Anyway, here's another question. Favorite cut of beef. Is this annoying? These like boring questions. I don't care. I really want to know. We're going to revert back to the farm you buy your beef from. This, that farm, stay one farm. Cool. <laughs> Favorite cut of beef is never, never, ever, ever the same. I don't have a favorite cut of beef. And that's not like me being like, ooh, I don't have a favorite dish on a menu or whatever. The, one of the things I love about grass-fed, the grass-fed world, is the same thing that everybody hates about it. It's very inconsistent. But I find it so refreshing when you're – it's not monotonous. Everything gets monotonous. Every job gets repetitive, right? But when you're butchering an animal that's a little different every week, protein structure, fat structure, densities, it's fun. And sometimes the cut that you liked last week – isn't as great on the next animal. And there's like, I, I, I don't have one favorite. I will say people um, definitely need to realize how much of certain cuts come from an animal. Like if you bring in a 900 pound beef and you get a pound and a half of hanger steak, that shit should go for like $26 a pound, dude. I know, it should. Um, but So that's the thing. It's like all those older, like the cuts that got really popular, um, kind of like late, late 90s, mid-2000s, that used to be considered just butcher's cuts. For those to be popular, a facility or a or abattoir or whatever, they, they have to be processing hundreds of animals a day to make that a thing. So it's like, it's a little more special when it's coming from a small butcher shop uh, that does two animals a week. You know, when you get three pounds of hanger steak a week, you can't afford for that to be your favorite cut. You know what my favorite cut this week is? What? Top round. <laughs> Delish. Sitting only you. <laughs> I'm like, hanger steak's my favorite. But, you know, you, once it's gone, it's gone. Um, okay, let's good transition into whole animal butchering. What, is, what does that mean? Like, really, the whole animal? Like, I feel like, what aren't you using? <laughs> You're miming the, the butcher, the butchery technique. And from, I don't know, I have no experience, but I I think it looks good. I thought that's what it was, yeah. <laughs> it's too bad this is not video. Um, the... What, what are you using? All right, so there's things you legally can't get from a USDA facility. Let's talk about that yeah. right now. Um, we work with a, a facility called Eagle Bridge in Eagle Bridge, New York. They started as a small family farm that wanted to process their own animals. They were able to turn that into a USDA facility so they can process animals for the farms surrounding them. What if I do it around my nose? That, that'll be my vantage point. Yeah. I'll be around my nose. Is that better? Yeah. I'm afraid of it. What's on there? Where's this thing been? I don't know where this thing has been. Great. Okay. Um... You're definitely going to have to sanitize it after this. <laughs> Whoa. Eagle Bridge. Okay, so, um, yeah, so like a small small USDA facility that works with um, farms in its surrounding area. And um, USDA isn't allowing animals over 30 months to keep their spine um, because of, just real quick, uh, mad cow disease um, lives lives in the cerebral cortex, so they say. Um, it can, it can't, uh, you know, it's a prion that, that could be there at that age, um, either if the back row of teeth are coming in or if it's above 30, 30 months. They pull the spine. 
Um, so you can't control that. Um, if an animal is bolted in the head to stun it, um, not to kill it, to stun it, um, they will not let you keep the head. You do not get the head. They'll pull the tongue out, but they won't let you keep the head. To, to bolt it, to stun it before it goes to slaughter. So they, so, the, so humanely, you want to, you want to stun an animal before you slit its throat. When you slit its throat, it needs to be hanging upside down. It's very stressful to hang a 1,300-pound beef upside down while it's alive. Or a 400-pound pig, you know. So what they do is they, the beef, they stun it. Uh, If the stun doesn't work, then they have to shoot it. Uh, And then they hang it upside down, slit its throat, let it bleed out. Um, And pigs, they they electric shock right on the temples. But um, since the bolt goes through the hide, which has not been sanitized, into the skull, they deem the uh, skull as unsanitized, so, um, or insanitary, or insane. Fucking, I don't know. I don't work for the USDA. Um, and uh, so you don't get the head for sure. And then the, the hide gets pulled from the animal. Um, that generally goes to tanneries. Um, the hooves are are pretty much useless to a certain degree. Um, one, they're hard to, to fully remove all the particulate and all the hair from to pass a USDA inspection so they can go out. It's different in every state, and honestly, every facility is different. They're all about relationships with this inspector. Um, so uh, once the, the hide comes off and the viscera comes out of the animal, um, what we receive are the heart the liver, the kidneys, um, we'll get the call fat, we'll get the leaf lard, um, and uh, we get the, the thymus gland. Um, and I don't think I'm missing anything. We don't get the lungs, which fucking pisses me off. Sorry. We get the tongue. They'll pull the tongue out, but we don't get the cheeks. You know what's crazy? Off of one, like, 900-pound beef, you get a half pound of beef cheeks. What do you do with a half pound of beef cheeks? You tell me. <laughs> you put it in the freezer until you get three pounds of beef cheeks, and then you make ragu out of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, anyway, so yeah, so those are the things we don't get. The things we don't get are because of restrictions based that are implemented by the USDA in the specific spa- state, in the specific facility. Do you do you work with? Um, what have you ever? Do you have you ever killed the animal and animal animals yourself as part of the slaughtering process? No, I have not. Do you? Is that something you want to experience in any way? I mean, no one's like, yeah, I want to kill an animal today. But like, would it be kind of consistent with like we use the whole part of the animal? We. <laughs> I don't, I don't even know how to describe that on the air. <laughs> um, never mind. So, yeah, would, would you think that it is, like, um, consistent with, like, your the ethos of knowing every single part of the process? And I really don't think it smells that bad. And um, I, think you're, I think you're dodging the question. That's what I think is happening. I think that you're dodging the question. <laughs> Yeah, has everyone, anyone ever been like, well, you haven't killed the animal yourself, so you don't have, like, I don't know, full credibility. Not credibility. Can you help me out with this question here, please? <laughs> I am. Um, credibility, what are we talking about? Like, killing the animal. <laughs> <laughs> would you? There is the- would you? Would you? I absolutely would. I, um, I'm not going to ask some USDA facility to let me go in there and kill my own animal. One, they wouldn't let me do it because you have to be an insured employee of the facility. And two, I let the professionals do it. They know what they're doing. Do I want to kill the animal? I don't know. I'm not indifferent to it. I think if I was to slaughter an animal, it would be on a farm and it would be 
uh, like kind of gunshot to the head scenario slaughtered on the farm. But that would never be able to walk into my shop. That can I could never sell that to another person. Because it wasn't in a USDA-approved facility. But there, there are um, farms that, where you can process on the farm. Like, it doesn't Cascoon um, process all of its chickens on its farm? Yeah, they have a USDA facility. So I'm just saying, you could go to Cascoon. <laughs> they do chickens, bro. <laughs> Whatever, same thing. Have you ever killed a chicken? Of course I've killed a fucking chicken. That's like... Like everybody's grandma's killed a chicken. Like that's not really. It's a low bar. I haven't, but okay. All right. So, um, so do and do these farmers, the beef farmer, your your pork farmer, they have relationships. They like go to one slaughterhouse, and they know they they have that relationship. So there's kind of like full transparency along the supply chain. Well, there's 100 percent full transparency. Whether or not emotions come into play, that's another thing. I think um, my beef 100% of the time gets processed at the same facility. Um, The pigs kind of depends on who's on the kill floor at specific facilities. One facility that'll uh, process the pigs from the farm we work at, work with, will not do pigs that are over 350 pounds, which poses a problem for us. Um, I, I kind of made a specific decision. Is that a good way to specify a decision? Specific decision, right? I wanted larger pigs. I wanted older pigs that are more mature. A couple of reasons. The main reason being the protein structure is uh, far more developed. So in Europe, pigs are going to be a lot bigger than they are in the States um, because they appreciate salumi and charcuterie and they understand the importance of protein development when you do uh even just a brined cooked product um so these animals are 350 to 400 pounds minimum that are going to slaughter so these because they're so big they had to go to a different facility but this other facility the you know they're they're hourly workers It, it is what it is sometimes they make mistakes and Sometimes they suck and I get really mad because it's a bummer when you buy a whole animal and pay somebody to kill it and split it in half and send you all the organs and they don't do a good job at it, which is a real thing. So then what happens? I have a 30-minute conversation with the guy that owns the facility and hope it doesn't happen for a month. (laughs) Okay, okay. so... (laughs) Can I ask you a question that um, I was, uh, you know, before this interview I was preparing and I looked up and I, you know, sometimes I like to ask people um, what they, what I should ask. You know, I'm talking to this person. What would you want to hear them talk to? And my, I asked this to my friend um, and she goes, yes, how does he sleep at night? And then I realized she's a vegan. So I don't know. Do you have any response? <laughs> I think I was asking the wrong person. But um, I'd forgotten that. But I don't know. What would you say? Like a fucking baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, work a 14-hour day and tell me how you sleep. I sleep, I sleep great. Okay, so um, that is it that, you know, I was joking, obviously. I mean, her question was real, but um, probably. Do you? Day on Instagram, by the way. On Instagram, yeah. But, you know, I mean, there is there is something to be said for the fact that, like, like it is universally known and to be true that um, whenever you talk to, like, a scientist, anyone who's, like, in thinks about climate change, anyone who that keeps in them up at night, the number one thing that like the advice for consumers that like scientists, academics, everybody says is eat less meat, right? I mean, because, because cows are a major emitter of greenhouse gases. And, um, I'm just wondering how you kind of that like squares with the fact that, I mean, for your living, you process and support, you process beef and support farmers who raise beef. So, um, I'm just, I'm wondering your perspective on like, how you 
what you where you kind of fall knowing that those two things are true um i i mean i don't pro- promote meat consumption um i I, I hate that I use this word as often as I do. Can you give me a better word to replace it? I, 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 I try to promote responsible consumption. Um, yeah, eat less meat, but eat better quality meat. Um, I don't think 200 head of cattle on 400 acres that's rotated properly adds to greenhouse emissions. I don't. I'm sorry. I don't. You know what I do think adds to greenhouse emissions? I think a thousand head of cattle on five acres of land stuffed with corn and soy and hormones and antibiotics. Yeah. That does nothing for the soil. That doesn't generate grass or plants that are going to process carbon. It does absolutely nothing but produce emissions. And I am a, a strong believer in supporting grass-fed 100% of the way. And this is like my whole thing about grass-fed versus grass-fed grain finish. Like, I don't care about grain. Like, I would love us to get away from corn and soy. Honestly, like, why do we need a million sweeteners? Like, why is our farm bill dedicated towards subsidizing corn, soy, and wheat? Why don't we subsidize the thing that's actually causing carbon emissions? Like, let's donate some land to some grass-fed beef farmers. Help subsidize them. Obviously, you've missed my past few episodes on crop subsidy (laughs) on the crop insurance program, but you should definitely catch up on them, and I totally agree. Um, Okay, so thank you for your response to that. And as a follow-up, and not to put you in the hot seat, <laughs> such a lame term. Um, so good. <laughs> so you shouldn't break your chair. Um, good food. So people should eat meat, or people should, yeah, you're like, people should eat meat. Not too much. People should eat better meat. Better meat takes longer to produce, is produced with more care. It costs more. How... Um, have you gotten the kind of question or feedback from people that it's like, well, your food's too, your, you know, your meat's too expensive, your food's too expensive. And what do you say if you've, I'm sure you've gotten that question. I feel like people question the price of food all the time, no matter what it is. So what do you, what do you say in response? I don't know. I'm like a really pompous hipster butcher. (laughs) So people just see that when they walk in the door and they're like, I ain't even going to talk to this dude. I mean, it kind of goes back to what I was like, I was, I was, I was pointing out the fact that like, we do not use all the marketing terminology. We do not beat people over the head with all the, the trendy words that people want to hear to feel good about what they want to buy. We do instigate a conversation and we want people to have a conversation with us because we don't think people need to hear everything. People need to hear what they want to hear, but more importantly, they're consumers. They're coming in to buy. They're not coming in to, like, join a new religion, you know? Like, some people can afford to buy the, the meat that we sell because they can afford it, and they feel good about that. Some people can't afford it, but they still buy it because they believe in what we do, and they want to eat protein that makes them feel better. And I don't want to lump anybody into the same category. So we get it all the time. Our meat's too expensive. Or why does this cost this? Or why does this cost this? And it's hard for it not to be insulting, to be honest with you. Because it's like what people don't see is the amount of time and effort that goes on behind the scenes. Not just on the farms. I mean, to be able to raise a 100% grass-fed animal takes two and a half years. That's a long time, you know? And they don't know that. If they want to know, we'll tell them about it. 
Okay, have to leave it there for today. Big thanks to Industry City for hosting us. Um, Eating Matters is produced with help from Jessica Duncan and Julia Devon. Um, Big thanks to our show engineer as well, Matt Patterson, for this episode. Show music is by Tim Archer. Um, You can find all episodes of Eating Matters on Heritage Radio Network's website or wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.